Hello, my name is Rob Woods and welcome to episode 10 of the Fundraising Bright Spots podcast. This is the show for anyone who works in charity fundraising and who wants ideas and inspiration for how to raise more money, really enjoy their job and make a bigger difference. Just before we start, I wanted to say a huge thank you to everyone who's been getting in touch via Twitter and LinkedIn to give feedback about the episodes we've released so far. Just this morning, I had several lovely comments about the episodes on Major Gifts with Tony Gaston and the one on Developing Your Career with Liz Tate. I'm so pleased you're finding these are helpful and please do keep those comments coming in as I find them so encouraging as I keep striving to find the time to get the next episodes made. And on this episode, we're looking at fundraising insight and how you can take practical steps to get better at gathering and learning from insight effectively. So if you've ever worked really hard on a project, but the results were disappointing, and you sense that there was something about what you did that didn't quite match the supporter it was supposed to be for, but you were also at a loss as to how you could do better next time, then you're going to find this episode really useful because I was thrilled to be able to sit down with the brilliant Leslie Pinder to understand how she approaches the crucial discipline of gathering insight to improve fundraising results. Leslie is the head of supporter experience at the British Red Cross, and as such, she spends her time helping her colleagues from all kinds of fundraising discipline to better understand their supporters in order to take deliberate steps to create a better experience for those supporters. I got so much from this session, including a really useful, clear model of the three steps Leslie uses to demystify and organise how you gather insight. She also gives some really practical tactics for finding out about your supporter's world, which are genuinely fun and different to the questionnaires that I had previously thought research was mostly about. Talking to Leslie made me much more motivated and willing to make time for gathering insight because she gave me a clear sense of how very doable it is for any of us who are serious about improving our results. So let's get started with the interview. This episode of the Fundraising Bright Spots podcast is brought to you by the Bright Spot Members Club. As a practical alternative to one-off conferences and courses whose impact can fade all too quickly, the Members Club is an online resource that gives you ongoing access to a whole library of video training courses, monthly coaching webinars and live training events. It's all designed to help you learn, enjoy your job and raise more money. To join the 300 fundraisers already in the club, or just to find out more, go to brightspotfundraising.co.uk. So, hello, Leslie Pinder, how are you? I'm very well, thank you. Good. I've enjoyed your talks at conferences at various points, and I know your job has slightly changed over the years. Um, at one point you were, I think you're at Breast Cancer Now, and you did, did a time at, at Good Innovation, and now you're Head of Supporter Experience at the British Red Cross. I guess my first question, before we get into it and I can pick your brains about supporter experience and insight and so, so on, I guess mm -hmm. my first question is, um, it's a slightly different kind of job title to, to what used to happen in charities five or 10 years ago. Um, top line, how did you get into this role now? What's a potted history of your uh, arriving in this role? Oh, that's a very good question. Um, so for around 10 to 12 years, I'm, I was a, a, a bit of a jack of all trades fundraiser. So I've done uh, individual giving fundraising, community events, corporate philanthropy, um, and then found myself in an innovation role, which was mainly around new product development. But within 
that I understood or learned just how much um, understanding the people that you're creating a thing for and designing things for your supporters makes such a huge difference to your, uh, your fundraising. Um, and moving into the head of supporter experience job felt like a culmination of all of those years of fundraising and then that learning and understanding of innovation um, and innovative thinking into the space where I think as a sector we had the biggest work to do, which was the experience that we were giving our supporters. So it felt like a very natural um, place for me to end up. Um, and that it was at the British Red Cross as well um, meant that it, it, it had that added scale of opportunity as well. Yes. So that's how I get where I am. <laughs> yeah, thank you very much to, to give us a, a sense of that direction so far. Mm. Um, Yes, I think five or ten years ago, there weren't many job titles which included the word supporter experience. Mm -hmm. We didn't even use the word insight as often, I think, as we did do now. Mm -hmm. um, I've done so many interviews with fundraisers who've done really well. And at the back of most of the stories, when I really dig deep, one of the things they seem to be better than most at is striving to better understand the supporter in order that so that when the supporter supports or they give that it is better for the supporters so i've noticed as a trait that often leads to success i don't think there's much fundraising success if you haven't got that this bit right you know maybe it's just we're, we're too busy there's too much to do but my observation is is it's it remains a thing many charities and many fundraisers could get better at and um, what's your perception of some of the reasons why it, we're still not doing as well as we could I have, have a big long list. <laughs> I think that's a, that's a really interesting question. I think as a sector, um, I think we've become a bit complacent. Um, we know and we hear uh, all the time that giving is an in inherent part of humanity and that and people are, people want to give and people want to make a difference in the world. Um, and I think that has meant that sometimes we assume that that's enough. Um, and that just by our very existing as a charity and giving people an opportunity to give that that, that we are doing all that we can do. Um, and and so I'd, I think sometimes there's a perception that really that's all you need to know. Um, I also think that um, we are a bit scared of research, um, partly just because the skill set capabilities and, and capacity to do it doesn't necessarily exist. And so there's a fear of how do you know if you're doing the right research? How do you know if you're, you're finding out the right things? And if you find out lots of things, how do you focus on what matters? Um, so I think there's a fear of it. Um, and that I think has led to people relying on data as the answer to everything. So um, looking at how people have behaved in the past as the answer for how they're gonna behave in the future. Um, which I don't think is, it really works anymore. I think you still, obviously, you still need behavioural data and you need to analyse performance, but I think that's become the, the default for us because it's it's comfortable data and it, it gives you a yes or a no, um, whereas real human insight is a bit messy um, and might tell us things we don't want to hear. So there's a, there's a few things. And I think the last thing, which kind of goes over all of it and links right back to the first one, is I think as charities, we, we're not very good at seeing ourselves as uh, in other people's world. So I think 
um, we view ourselves as operating separate to what's going on in the world and people's lives when really we're just one part of a much more complicated context. And if you just view yourselves as the most important, then you don't think it's important to find out what else is going on in people's lives. Um, and I think that links back to just sort of maybe being a little bit complacent. Um, so there's lots of reasons, um, uh, multiple, and then on top of that, budget and time <laughs> being the two big ones. <laughs> yeah. So I'm, I'm really interested in that last one because it, it's mm. really quite hard to overcome because in most charities, we're blessed that we're surrounded by really passionate, driven people. Yes. Whom this cause is astonishingly important and it's the top of the agenda and it needs to be that way because how else are we ever going to cut through and <laughs> one of the most quoted words at conferences is the word passion mm. um, but I agree it, it can cause this curse of knowledge whereby we're not quite real in, in, in necessarily meeting our ideas about our cause at the point in the way in which or in the language in which or the context in which our supporters meet it and so it can cause us to to um think that to be passionate and you know enthusiastic enough and keep you know to speak louder speak more mm -hmm. well of course people want to hear this message if only we can reach them so mm -hmm. i i agree there's there's human and there's organizational reasons why that just is quite hard to solve is that your sense yeah, I think so. I um, I, I agree. I think there's a, a a danger of assuming that everybody cares about what you're doing as much as you do, on the one hand, but then I think on the converse there is also a little bit of an underestimation of our supporters, and assuming that they won't understand things and that they don't they if you were to ask them feedback or or get their views on your cause or that they wouldn't fully understand it because they're not the experts like we are. Um, so there's it, there's two sides of it. I think it's both it's both um, assuming they care as much as we do, but also assuming that that care and passion for our work is a bit simple and not as clever as ours. Um, and one of the things I've found, and actually this week has been an amazing example of it, where we put in front of some supporters of ours some future gazing concepts about what supporting the Red Cross might look like in ten years' time, and the responses and the the articulation of what we were trying to say meant from the supporters was so much more clear and crisp and thoughtful than we had probably managed to articulate it ourselves. They were describing what we were talking about in language much more human um, and and completely got what we were trying to what we were trying to say. Um, and I think sometimes we have an assumption that, that they, they, they won't understand that sort of stuff and that we know best because we're the experts. And so we shouldn't ask them um, because they won't get it. Uh, and I think that's a, 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 and also there's a thing as well about a, an ego thing around, I'm the expert in this, I shouldn't need to ask. I shouldn't need to ask for help. I shouldn't need to ask what people think because I should know the answer. And that's a cultural, you know, that's a, a cultural thing and it, it's not just in supporter insight but just in the way that people run projects or I think you think if I'm a fundraising expert I shouldn't have to ask the audience because I should know the answers myself. I, I agree with all of those bits <laughs> and one one thing I particularly picked up on a couple of minutes ago was was fear mm. and in particular just then you were saying about fear of, of what if we ask their opinion and actually they might not agree 
with all of what we were going to do? Or how, how will we respond to them not liking something that we want to do or, or frankly, we feel we need to do? And um, in your work now, how do you tend to overcome that in your, yourself or crucially with some of the other stakeholders within your charity who might feel those fears? I think what's really important if you're going to go out and speak to your supporters about anything is understanding what the question is you're asking. Um, And if you go out with a too broad kind of, oh, just tell us how you feel about X, Y and Z, then there is a a danger of being completely overwhelmed with so much feedback that's that's quite disparate in general that you don't know what to do with it. Um, So being very clear about what question you want to ask, why you're asking it and what you're going to do with what you find out. Um, is really helpful and and I think an example would be we asked our donors um, who support we went out to speak to our donors who support us in emergencies and what we wanted to know is what was important and and why they supported us at that specific time in their experience with us Um, and we asked them some very specific questions about that point in time rather than trying to understand everything that they felt about the Red Cross and everything that they felt about the world um, and the other thing is also knowing that you're reassuring people that you're not going to make every single decision based on the research that you do. You then apply the research and then you test what you've done as well. So you don't just ditch everything because a, a group of people have said that they don't particularly support an area of your work. Um, it's, it's, the research has to always be part of a bigger picture, uh, not just what they tell you, but also what your mission is uh, and what's financially going to be possible as well. Don't know if that makes that, sense. Yeah, it does. So that's really reassuring. Mm. And I, I sense you, you help your internal clients get a clarity on the, the overall context, the overall picture of how we make decisions. And this this particular focus group or this particular questionnaire, this is one part of it, and it fits into this whole for an underlying pattern or or, or a, an insight that builds up from several different areas rather than needing to respond in a knee-jerk way to any particular outlier opinion. And I guess people understand it. It makes perfect sense to me the way you've said it to me now. (laughs) But I think I, I too, if I were your internal client, would have needed to know that in order to be more brave to ask for the opinions. Yeah, absolutely. I think um, people often use the the phrase supporter-led, which implies that if your supporters say one, tell you something, that therefore you do that. And, and that's not how research works. Um, if, if, our, if a big group of supporters of ours turned around and told us that they didn't think that we should be working in crisis response, we're not going to stop working in crisis response. We're just maybe not going to talk to those people about it anymore. I mean, to me, that tells me that we're maybe not speak, that our supporters aren't actually that committed to our work. So the research can give you answers that might, yeah, it, it might not tell you what that, if it could tell you that those supporters don't like your work, in which case you're recruiting the wrong supporters. <laughs> so um, absolutely, it has to be a, a the, the perfect Venn diagram is, is your supporters' needs and views and attitudes and your mission. Like you, you can't give up one for the other. Um, but sometimes we, it's about how you talk about that mission, how you articulate it to those supporters and the opportunities you give them to play a part in it can definitely be informed by your, by your supporters. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Fantastic. It's not, it's not one or the other. And also I would say that you should never ask your supporters if they like something, (laughs) 
or or what they want. <laughs> so um, I think one of the biggest misconceptions I've had um, and or things I get told to me repeatedly is supporters will tell you one thing and do another, um, which comes from the old school surveys of how would you like to be thanked? <laughs> and people will say yes or no, or how often would you like to be emailed by us? Um, or, or the classic, um, how would you rate the frequency of our communications? And people will always say just right. <laughs> They'll never say too much or too little. They'll always just say just right. But that, they're not the right questions to be asking. Um, they're just, they're, you know, if you ask people if they want to be thanked, they're always going to say no because they don't want to look like the sorts of people who need thanked. Um, but if you actually ask people what uh, a charity has done for them that's really made them feel inspired, it's they'll tell you things like um, they, they got in touch with me and let me know how much that, that uh, donation had made a difference and they showed me how it had been spent. Um, they made me feel like I was part of their organisation. They made me feel like my gift was part of a bigger whole. All of those things are feelings that you give people by thanking. But if you just ask them, do you want thanked? They'll say no. Um, so there's, I think there's a bit of a problem with yes or no, uh, do you like this? Do you not like this? Quite binary, tell us if this is right research and you're never going to get the, the the real truth from that. If you just ask people uh, that kind of stuff, you're, nev you're never truly going to understand what they care about because you, that's not what you're asking. You're asking them to tell you what you want them to tell you, not really what they want to say. So that, thank you, Leslie. That I think that's a key distinction here is this should never be about about just can we tick, tick the box so that we can get the go ahead to invest in our project because some people said, yes, go ahead. It's, yeah. it's a much more mature and uh, valuable and vulnerable approach to we might not know it all. The whole point of trying to find out is so that we will learn something rather than to, to safely tick a box so that we can char charge on as we were going to. Yeah, absolutely. I think sometimes... You, you might ask a donor a question like, can you tell, you know, what, what is it that you really like, like about our organisation? And then they, they might come back saying, well, I, I love that you do an event in my local community. I always see, uh, I really like that 10K run that you do. And if, they, and if you just took that as the, the surface answer, you'd be like, okay, cool, let's do more 10Ks. Let's do 10Ks everywhere. We need to do a 10K in every town in the, in the country. But if you said to them, well, why is it that you really love that 10K? And they say, oh, you know, it's really good fun. You go, okay, cool, cool. But why is it fun? Oh, I love it because I get the opportunity to do something with my family that I wouldn't normally get to do. And I meet people from the charity and I get to know them face to face and they tell me about the work that you're doing. And they 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 give a, a little speech at the beginning about all the kids in the local hospice that have been helped. That underneath that, I really love a 10K is community and personal connection uh, and fun. And you can deliver those things in multiple ways, not just by 10Ks. But I think, unfortunately, we would just take the first answer and go, cool, hundreds of 10Ks. And I think that's why we've gone as a sector, oh, look, that thing over there that's working for them, Race for Life or whatever, we need one of them. Or Coffee Morning is working for Macmillan, we need a Coffee Morning, rather than looking underneath why Coffee Morning works for Macmillan and then trying to find your version of that, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, it does. Uh, and... Um, maybe we'll we'll come on to this, but I, a thing I took from your excellent talk, which I saw at the International Fundraising Congress the other day, mm -hmm. was helping me see 
this work in, in a much more holistic way overall and that I should be trying to learn rather than just tick boxes but mm. also that within the mix of how you might learn there's all sorts of different tactics you could use rather than just the one or two that I had in my head as to how I might find out you know what what some some uh, insights might be so yeah. um maybe across this talk you'll be able to, to give us a sense of the range of things we can do rather than the one or two or three that are in in most fundraisers methodology um, yeah and the, the other thing uh, if we can also lead on to is if you've got a broad process you know i don't know if it's three steps or four steps or five steps that that you tend to follow whenever you're carrying out some research like this i'd love to hear that one as well but it's up to you do you want mm -hmm. to talk to that first question first about the range available well i think i can talk, I'll talk to the latter and then in that answer the, the first one um so yes i we we do have a broad kind of approach um that we've been using for our, our supporter experience design projects that i, I call them design projects because that's kind of what we're, we're trying to design better experiences at different stages on that process you might use different types of research and um, for different reasons um, so at the beginning of a project the first thing we would always do is is a kind of discovery phase of what is the problem we're trying to solve and how do we know it's a problem um, and so that would be where um, through conversations with colleagues or through some feedback that we're getting from donors we start to identify an area that might be a bit of an issue um, so for example for us when I first joined just by chatting to colleagues discovered that there was a specific group of donors that had no defined journey even though we had an assumption and hunch that they were a particularly committed group of supporters um, and so the first stage of that uh, project was to, was doing a kind of discovery around that so that's when we did research like looking at our existing data analysis about how those donors have behaved in the past or uh, looking at their behavior on the website and um, so that we did quite a lot of quant quant research at that stage or data analysis um, to look at what we thought the problem was and and data and quant is really good for like get, getting an understanding of the size of the problem and what people are doing uh, and then from that research we were able to go okay we think there's something going on in the first kind of three months we based on their behavior, we think that they might be this kind of supporter. We have a hunch that they're interested in these sorts of things, but we don't really know where that comes from. Um, they give, they mainly sign up around times of emergency. So obviously that's a big area of interest for them. And so we probably think we might be interested in international work. So in that discovery phase, looking what research you already have, and some of that's also speaking to colleagues as well, which still counts as research. You come up with a list of assumptions and questions that you want to explore further. Um, and, and and usually a, a kind of problem statement, which is how can we, for us at that point, is that how can we create a more engaging experience for this group of supporters that uh, improves their loyalty? Um, and then in the second stage, we went into exploration, and that's when it was more about understanding why they behave the way they do, they care about. And that's when you start bringing in techniques like we did telephone interviews. Um, we did do some quant surveys, but we made sure we included qualitative open text questions as well. You can do things like diary activities or pop up online co-creation communities. Um, depending on the project, you can literally go out and speak to people and follow them about. You know, if, if we might be doing a project with our retail shops, for example, I'd go into the retail shops and talk to customers there and then. 
Um, and so that would be the phase two, which would be the exploration phase of, of really, truly trying to understand the supporter. And that is the point where you need to stop asking questions about you and start asking questions about them. The discovery phase is much more about us and our what we think is going on in the exploration phase has to be about what is actually happening in real life and why are people behaving that way? What do they feel uh, and what are their needs? Um, and we would uh, also do things like journey mapping at that stage. So based on what our supporters are telling us, what is actually going on for them and the journey that they have with us and where the pain points and, and that side of thing. Um, and using that research, that's when we'd be like, okay, the, the, the question is how do we improve loyalty? The problem is we're not meeting their needs in this way um, or they need this kind of information for us that we're not giving. Um, and then we would create solutions. And then the third stage is, is kind of, I guess, I'm not going to use the word validation because val I've just read this brilliant book called Just Enough Research where they point out that by saying validation, it means you're assuming that you're going to find out you're right. <laughs> um, so it should be evaluation, not validation, or you know, or you might unvalidate what you think is right, which is just as valid, <laughs> if that makes sense. <laughs> and then that's a different kind of research. That's where you might do like, okay, we think the answer is going to be this new email journey, so we'll A-B test it with the existing email journey. Or we'll do surveys uh, uh, or we'll, um, uh, we'll do some data analysis to see how their behaviour is changing. Uh, so there's different types of research that you would do at different stages. And I, and I hope what's come out for me just explaining that is the fact that it has to be a suite of different types of research. Just quant and just qual and then just things like A-B testing or data analysis on their own won't give you the answers that you need. Not that there's ever an answer, just to be clear. <laughs> there's never a right answer. Um, but together, you can you can use those different techniques for different reasons. And, and, then, and then you just have to keep exploring. I think that's one of my biggest learnings is that I think what people look for in research is answers. And I don't think you ever get answers. You just, you, you just get more defined uh, guidance or steer on what might be the right direction. Mm. Does that make sense? Hopefully That's fabulous. So um, I really liked that big picture model that you explained the other day at the conference. Uh, mm. The one chunk is the discovery phase, mm -hmm. uh, to, among other things, to, to work out, are we solving the right problem? What problem are we trying to solve? Mm -hmm. And then the second one is the exploration phase. Mm -hmm. And then the third one, broadly, is the evaluation phase in which you are more testing out responses to whatever it is you think you've just learned so far have i correct broadly correctly summed up those three chunks yeah totally so the the project i mentioned about that group of group of supporters that we we knew weren't getting a, a particularly great experience with us we've just launched that new journey with them um it's been running for about five weeks um, and so we are evaluating the responses to those emails. So just at the basic level, the response rates and are people opening and clicking through and are they unsubscribing? None are unsubscribing so far. So that's a good, that's good. Um, but then we're also building in feedback points with the supporters as well and, and, and asking their feedback on, um, on what we've been sending them and if they find it interesting and, and, and how it's made them feel. Um, and whether it's increased their knowledge of the Red Cross or increased their sort of positive feelings towards the Red Cross. So um, although we did a lot of upfront research, the re it doesn't stop now. And we may find that the, what we've designed isn't quite right. And then, then we'll change it, um, which is absolutely fine. Um, the quicker you can get stuff out into the market and test it 
in real life the better. Um, and we've learned so much more in the last five weeks than we did really probably in the six months prior to it, just talking about it. <laughs> Getting it out um, has, has really helped us. So. Fantastic. Um, there were two things I, you mentioned a little while ago that I'd love for you just to explain a little more. One was diary activities mm. and the other was co-creating. Uh, both of which were new to me be before you explained them at the conference. Can you bring those to life a bit? What might, what might either of those look like in practice? And, you know, again, if many of our listeners are in smaller organisations that don't necessarily, you know, have a dedicated uh, person like you to help them with this, mm. you know, what's a version of, of those things that, that uh, someone might do if they're working in a smaller organisation? Cool. So the term that people talk about if you're a researcher is ethnographic research which is really jargony but it basically means taking yourself out of where you are into the world of the the people that you're designing a thing for so if you're a community fundraiser designing a new thing for schools for example it might mean that you literally go and spend a day in a primary school with a teacher uh, and watch them and see what their life is like or um, sit and um, chat to the kids or meet the teachers at parent teachers evening and and you, you're literally putting yourselves in into their world if I was to do a piece of work on like the experience of our shop volunteers I would go and shadow a shop volunteer um to understand what what it feels like for them that's kind of hard sometimes and and quite time consuming also quite scary to be brutally honest it's, it's not um it's not a natural thing to do just to go and watch someone <laughs> um, but doing diaries is a really nice way of getting a, a glimpse of what somebody's real life looks like without actually physically being there so you can give people different tasks um, and it can be done super simple so you can hire um or not hire but like uh, sign up or recruit 10 or 15 people at the, keep the school school example teachers for example or, or parents and every day ask them to send you a picture or something they've done that day, um, you can ask uh, you can ask them to share a highlight or a low light. If you're doing it around a specific thing like sport, if it's for sport relief, for example, or an animal charity, you could say to them, "Oh, can you um, share something you've done with your pet today? Uh, can you share something that has made you think about um, the environment today? Take a picture of something that you think represents climate change." In your environment today or tell us show us a picture of um something that makes you stay up at night and that you really worry about uh, and and you can be quite broad and then they have to be quite creative with what they send you so you might if you might end up with pictures of people playing with their dogs or them talking about how they uh, are really panicked and worried about the fact they're not really recycling as much as they think they should be um, and you really start to get an understanding of what's happening in their life rather than just saying, can you tell us how you feel about the latest WWF campaign on X? Um, you really get, an, like, if ever I do those sorts of projects, the, I never, never really mention the charity. And half, half the time, you don't even really tell them what charity it's for. Um, and we did something similar at Breakthrough Breast Cancer, um, where we had an online co-creation insight panel for three weeks with young women aged 18 to 35 um, and where we asked them about fashion and charity and what it meant to live ethically and they had to share pictures and talk about things they'd done that day and if they went shopping on Saturday we asked them to share pictures 
and you just build a picture of real human people and the worlds that they live in and then you start to see how what you do could potentially fit in with that or make their lives better and um, whilst also plus also giving them the opportunity to change the world great um, and so it's a really powerful tool and you can do it just by sending a word document if you wanted and asking them to fill it in at the end of each day or doing it on whatsapp um, it doesn't have to be expensive uh, at all to do it so a, a key thing i'm realizing is the way you're talking about it i can picture many of those 15 women actually quite enjoying it and looking forward to taking the photo and that's different from my old paradigm of research which is having to sit down and fill in a form and it's always longer than I thought it would be and <laughs> jams and all the rest of it. Uh, yeah. or, or, or I'm, I'm on a high street and I'm trying to get my sandwich and someone's got a clipboard and they want to ask, yes. ask me 28 questions and they say it would only take five minutes, but obviously um, it's going to take longer. It seems to me that part of your, <laughs> part of your, your process is to be insightful in how you gather insight, i.e. do it in terms that, in and of themselves, they're likely to be more fun and easy to do. Is yeah, that... absolutely. Absolutely. Although, having said that, I did do a diary exercise with teachers and giving more teachers more paperwork. In hindsight, not a good plan. Um, <laughs> but they were very diligent and they did their homework because they're teachers. And um, but by doing it the way we did it was yeah didn't didn't add to their lives. It kind of got in the way. Um, yeah, absolutely. And and I I think it's important to to say that. By no means do I think that you should never do big, large-scale research projects with professional research agencies. If you're trying to solve a big, complex problem or you're trying to make really big change for your organisation that really does require a huge amount of rigour, absolutely you should work with a professional research agency. If you want to understand who your supporters are so that day in, day out, you can have a bit of empathy and understand who you're creating for, you can do it yourself. I hope you found Leslie's ideas and advice helpful. If you want to go back to the key ideas we explore in this episode, take a look at the episode notes in the blog and podcast section of our website, which is brightspotfundraising.co.uk. As you may know, I try to keep these episodes down to about half an hour so people can, for instance, fit them into a reasonable commute. But as I was recording this chat with Leslie, I realised you can't possibly do justice to a weighty topic like this in that time. So we ended up creating two half hour episodes from the interview rather than just one really long one. So if you liked today's episode, then do look out for the next episode where there's lots more valuable advice including the crucial topic of how you get sceptics in your organisation, even if they're more senior than you, to buy into the importance of this approach to fundraising. Finally, thank you so much for listening. I really appreciate that you find the time to keep learning, exploring ideas and trying out new things to improve your charity's capacity to make a difference. I look forward to sharing the second half of my chat with Leslie in the next episode. Goodbye. Goodbye.